You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. In 2013, Canadian artist Gillian Genzer started to feel sick, and for two years, not one doctor could determine why. Headaches, agitation, and vomiting gave way to hearing loss and memory issues. Finally, Genzer was diagnosed with heavy metal poisoning, but she didn't sculpt or work with metal. She worked with seashells. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Art is beauty. Art is life. Art is what breathes magic into the mundane. I mean, we've all seen that bumper sticker that says, without art, the earth is eh. But what that pithy bit of sticky-backed vinyl doesn't tell you is that art is absolutely fraught with danger. And sometimes, art can be death as well as life. How did we arrive on such a cheerful topic today? It was voted on by our supporters at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. Though you can't blame them because it was a multiple-choice quiz, I'm the one that put the suggestion in there. We opened with a sculptor, so let's start there. It's also, to me, the most obvious kind of dangerous art, and I like to get the obvious stuff out of the way so we can get to that sweet, sweet obscura. If you've ever flown into Denver Airport, perhaps to investigate for yourself the truly boggling number of conspiracy theories around it, you'd be hard-pressed to miss the 32-foot, 9.7-meter-tall, blue fiberglass horse sculpture, complete with glowing red eyes. Love it or hate it, and many people do, the statue officially called the Mustang, but colloquially known as Blucifer, is eye-catching and life-ending. The man behind this now-iconic piece was Luis Jimenez, who grew up working in his father's neon sign shop and Lucifer's glowing red eyes are a hat tip to his father. He wanted a piece that felt more blue-collar and less artsy when he was commissioned to make a sculpture for the airport. His specific inspiration came from waking in the middle of the night to a noise in his living room, only to discover his blue Appaloosa horse had somehow gotten into the house. Blucifer is significantly more blue than an actual blue Appaloosa. That was a nod to the art of Jimenez's Latin American forebearers. The enormous sculpture is made up of three sections, the head, the torso, and the hindquarter, in total weighing over four and a half tons. The 65-year-old Jimenez had just declared the head to be complete when a section being moved from his studio came loose and pinned him against a steel support, severing an artery in his leg, leading to fatal exsanguination. The sculpture had to be completed by Jimenez's family, friends, 
and professional lowrider and race car painters Richard Lovato and Camila Nunez. I and we should stop calling the Mustang Lucifer, by the way. Jimenez's widow and executor of his estate, Susan, keeps an understandably close eye and firm hand on how the Mustang is used, refusing almost all requests to license the image, so to try to gain some control on her husband's legacy. Okay, sculpture is inherently dangerous. Maybe we should stick to something safer, like painting. Come on, we're a good four minutes into this episode. You know that's a fake-out. I could never get anything past you. Paints have had a long and storied history of being made out of things that are antithetical to good health and long life. Ancient Romans and medieval monks alike used cinnabar for its rich red color, never knowing the dangers of preparing and working with what is actually mercury ore. Similar problem with its replacement, vermilion, which can combine with elements in the air to form mercury chloride. It's any wonder the moniker Mad Monk was still available by the time Rasputin came along. Even the cadmium red that you can buy today is not without concern, as authorities in Sweden want to see it banned for contaminating the water supply from artists washing their brushes. Fellow lovers of the macabre side of history will probably know about Shields Green, an extremely popular dye used in everything from wallpaper and dress fabric to toys and even food. Unfortunately for everyone caught up in this early 19th century fad, it got its vibrant color from an arsenic compound. There are adherents to the theory that Shields Green wallpaper is what killed Napoleon Bonaparte in his exile home on the island of St. Helena. As the wallpaper molded from humidity, it released arsenic into the air. The more time Boney spent in bed, the sicker he got, and the more time he subsequently spent in bed. Lather, rinse, repeat, until you have one dead emperor. The grandpappy of all paint problems is plum bum, a.k.a. lead, and when I go into editing and look at that sound wave, we'll know whether or not I've cured my pee-popping problem. If you've purchased a house, at least in the U.S., built before 1970-whatever, you've gotten a written warning about the possibility of lead-based paint. Lead in paint goes way back, like 4th century BCE way back. And the health risks to the artistic set have been documented since at least the 1700s, though it would still take a century or two for people to make the connection between the condition and its cause. It's suspected that some of the great Western masters like Michelangelo, Caravaggio, and Goya suffered from some form of lead poisoning. Lead poisoning was in a tie with syphilis for suspected causes of Caravaggio's death, until recent studies of his bones found that he probably died of sepsis, having picked up staphylococcus from a sword wound, like you do. Ah, the good old days, when life was simple, everyone ate local organic food, and you died at the ripe old age of minor injury. At least, researchers are pretty sure the bones they examined are his. Sometimes even science isn't an exact science. The 1834 London Medical and Surgical Journal describes this painter's colic 
as sharp stomach pains occurring in patients who have no other evidence of any intestinal disease. Learned types called it Saturnism, from the alchemic name for lead. While typesetters, tinkers, and, as anyone who's learned five minutes of Roman history will attest, drinkers of leaded wine, fell victim to Saturnism, the disease was most widespread among those who worked with paint. What do those long hours slaving away over a hot canvas get you? Tell them what they've won. A cadaverous-looking pallor, tooth loss, fatigue, painful stomach aches, partial paralysis, and gout. While you can't and shouldn't try to diagnose someone you've never examined, especially if you're, you know, not a doctor, there are those who firmly believe that the troubled Vincent van Gogh suffered as pitifully as he did in his life because of lead poisoning. He apparently had the habit of licking his paintbrushes to get a fine tip, a technique that often carries a high cost. It might not have been as unpleasant as it sounds to us to lick a brush that already had paint on it. Lead has a sweet taste, hence its use with wine. Others think Van Gogh might have suffered from epilepsy and bipolar disorder, but Julio Montes Santiago, a Spanish internist who evaluated the existing evidence of lead poisoning among artists across five centuries, argues that lead poisoning likely contributed to Van Gogh's delusions and hallucinations. Meanwhile, other scholars have disputed the lead poisoning hypothesis, arguing that the root of Van Gogh's distress was porphyria, malnutrition, absinthe abuse, or some combination thereof. The best evidence for lead poisoning among artists comes from a relatively recent case, that of the 20th century Brazilian painter Candido Portinari, creator of massive painted murals. Portinari used paints similar to those used by Van Gogh and was diagnosed with Saturnism after bleeding in his stomach put him in the hospital in 1954. His doctors strongly urged him to change to safer modern paint, but he dramatically complained, they forbid me to live. He did try other media in his defense, but ultimately returned to his old paint, dying eight years later. You might think flat out telling someone, that thing you make art with is literally killing you, would have some effect on their behavior. But if you do think that, you don't know human beings very well. We want what we want when we want it. Combine that with how the slightest taste of success drives us headlong down our chosen path, and you have conditions ripe for disaster. Don't think dangers are confined to visual arts today. Dance can be deadly too. Problem one, the nature of dance costumes in general and ballet costumes specifically. They're meant to be flowy and ephemeral, often meant to evoke a sense of otherworldliness. And therein lies the problem. If you imagine a sheet of newspaper and a hunk of wood, essentially, chemically, they are the same. But one will catch light way more quickly than the other, says Martin Bride, a professor of textiles, fashion merchandising, and design at the University of Rhode Island. So if you have a very flimsy, flowing something that mixes well with air, it will burn quite readily. Problem two. 
The specific fabrics that were popular when spontaneous dancer combustion was an issue. Bobinette, cotton muslin, gauze, tarlatan. All diaphanous materials that could now be made more cheaply thanks to the machines of the Industrial Revolution, helping them to be more common on stage and off. But their open weave also made them super flammable. They caught readily and burned quickly. It was less, Mais non, Lisette's tutu has caught fire. Let us help her put it out. And a lot more like, Mon Dieu, Lisette, now I'm on fire. In one instance in 1861, at least six ballet dancers died when they tried to help one dancer whose costume caught fire backstage. Sometimes the entire theater would burn down from a single piece of clothing catching. Problem three, the lights. We're talking about the era when candles were giving way to gas footlights, neither one of which is good to have poised at your ankles when you're flitting about in a flowy dress. Bonus fact, the term two gaslight may seem like it came out of nowhere five years ago, but it actually dates back to a play in 1938 called Gaslight, in which a husband messes with the lights in the house and tells his wife she's seeing things when she complains. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Perhaps the most famous case of this tragic accident was Emma Livery, who made her Paris Opera debut in 1858 at age 16. She was a prodigy and immediately rose to great fame. In 1859, imperial decree demanded that all sets and costumes be flame-proofed with the best method available, carterinizing, treating the fabric with flame-retardant chemicals. This would make them relatively safe. But the ballerinas refused to use it. Many refused to perform in costumes or tutus that had been treated as the process left the fabric dingy-looking and stiffer. I insist, sir, on dancing at all first performances of the ballet in my ordinary ballet skirt, Livry wrote to the Paris Opera's director in 1860 in a formal declaration of independence. This wasn't a point 
she'd be able to argue for too much longer. Persons of a delicate constitution may wish to hit their jump forward button once. On November 15, 1862, Livery fluffed her skirts too close to a gas lamp and was instantly engulfed in flames. Another dancer and a nearby fireman tried to save her as she ran frantically around, but by the time they smothered the flames with a blanket, she'd suffered burns to 40% of her body. The heat was so intense that her corset fused into her flesh. She would die of sepsis while recovering. Many dance scholars pinpoint Livry's death as the end of France's dominant role in ballet, but it also inspired better safety measures, new designs for the gas lamps, the invention of flame-retardant gauze, and wet blankets in the wings, just in case. It wasn't only dancers whose lives were fraught with flames. The fashions and materials of the time put all women of middling and higher socioeconomic status in extraordinary danger. In 1860, the British medical journal The Lancet estimated that 3,000 British women had died by fire in a single year. It wasn't just the fabric, but the shape of the dress that caused women's clothing to erupt in flames. The popular silhouette of the 1850s was the giant bell shape, sort of ball gown kind of thing. To get that voluminous shape, women used a cage crinoline, a contraption made of hoops attached with tape and fastened around the waist. The crinoline allowed women to shed the layers of petticoats they used to wear to get that shape, creating some freedom of movement for their legs, as well as creating a boundary around them with the big skirt, letting them take up more space in the world. Unfortunately, this full skirt and the air underneath it created a funnel for fire, essentially a chimney, with you standing in the middle of it. This is a really bad place for a break, but it's also the middle of the script. So let's just roll with it. I've done more with less. Thanks to everyone who helped with hashtag Moxie Million. We didn't get the show quite up to a million downloads before its birthday, but that's coming real soon. And I think I'm going to do a whole separate thing in the Brainiac Break Room over on Facebook, facebook.com slash groups slash Brainiac Break Room, where you can post cool stuff you find, memes, you know, whatever that's reasonably decent for a mixed company. And I know the break room includes some of the fabulous people who leave reviews for the podcast, such as Blue Back Cut. I'm sure that's not how you intend that to be said. Whose review on Apple Podcasts says, Treat your brain. Your Brain on Facts was my second ever podcast. Moxie got me hooked on podcasts. I've been searching for another one that is as warm, witty, and packed with amusing randomness. I found some great episodes, but only Your Brain on Facts is my coveted weekly treat. Episode 172, Best Serve Loud, taught me that Van Morrison really is my spirit animal. He recorded a day-long filibuster of lists and assorted nonsense to chop up into the 36 songs owed to his record company. Done and dusted. Good stuff, Moxie. Thank you, Blueback Cat. I do love hearing people's favorite facts, like what really stuck out in their mind or burrowed into their brain so deep they can't get rid of it. And if a consensus were ever to develop around a favorite fact, then I could do more merch based on it. 
like the Ask Me About the Maggot Cheese t-shirt, which you can get from yourbrainonfacts.com slash merch. Lon Chaney, the first real horror movie star, was known as the Man of a Thousand Faces, and he earned it. He was a pioneer in movie makeup and in behind-the-scenes suffering. For Chaney, the art of acting was the art of continuous transformation, from pirate to Chinese shipwreck survivor, Russian Revolution peasant to circus clown, crusty railroad engineer to bell tower hunchback. People used to joke, don't step on that spider, it might be Lon Chaney. In his efforts to bring his characters to screen with the greatest realism, Chaney employed painful techniques to obscure and distort his physical features, like a special harness to keep his legs bound tightly behind him to play a double amputee in The Penalty, which caused broken blood vessels. His Quasimodo costume didn't include the 70- or 90-pound rubber hump of the urban legend, just a 20-pound hump made of plaster that he still had to carry on one shoulder all day. But the role did cause permanent partial vision loss in one eye due to the putty and adhesive tape. In a 1991 interview, Patsy Ruth Miller, who played Esmeralda in The Hunchback of Notre Dame, conjectured that the pain was part of Cheney's process. I felt that he almost relished that pain. It gave him that feeling he wanted to have of a tortured creature. The Phantom of the Opera's wireframe nasal appliance left Cheney bleeding. The primitive contact lenses he used to simulate blindness caused actual damage to his eyes, necessitating glasses. If I didn't list a role and its accompanying injury here specifically, it's safe to assume that it did some damage to his back, either through weight, constriction, or being twisted into an unnatural position for long periods of time. In 1929, while filming the movie Thunder, a piece of artificial snow got lodged in Cheney's throat, and it worsened an already nasty infection. Doctors took out his tonsils, but his throat continued to bother him. Despite that, he went on to film his first talkie, The Unholy Three, a film about three circus performers who decide to go into the crime business together in 1930. When filming was complete, he traveled to New York, where it was discovered he had bronchial cancer. Then came pneumonia, and it was a sadly rapid deterioration until his death that August. Now, if I've told you once, I've told you a dozen times, correlation doesn't equal causation. So why do I mention a piece of fake snow in a way that clearly implies the snow is to blame for causing, or at least hastening, Cheney's death? Because while that fake snow could have been cotton, feathers, paper, gypsum, or even instant potato flakes. Right up until the end of the 1950s, Hollywood's favorite fake snow was asbestos. Quick science primer. Asbestos, once considered the magic mineral for its flexible fibers, resistant to heat, electricity, and corrosion, was highly sought after in the early 20th century. It made for the perfect fake snow on movie sets because it was water and fireproof, lightweight, didn't melt, and was easy to handle. But it was anything but safe. There's no safe level of exposure to asbestos, 
which can cause deadly illnesses including mesothelioma and cancers of the lung, larynx, and, strangely, ovaries. In order to create winter scenes in many old Hollywood movies, filmmakers used pure white asbestos fibers to replicate the look of snow. Asbestos is most dangerous when it can be inhaled, which becomes extremely likely when you're dropping it from the rafters on people or blowing it around with industrial fans. The use of asbestos was actually a suggestion from, and I promise you'll never guess before I say it, the L.A. Fire Department, as an alternative to the inherently flammable cotton being used at the time. The asbestos snow had brand names like White Magic, Snowdrift, and Pure White. And yes, it absolutely was used in The Wizard of Oz, though ironically, that probably wouldn't make the top 10 of bad things that happened to that cast, or even just to Judy Garland. If I was to tell you about how the studio executives treated her, it'd break your little heart. The biggest name you'd probably recognize who died from asbestos-related lung disease was the King of Cool, Steve McQueen. He was diagnosed in 1979 and died in 1980, fully sure in his heart that stage insulation and the stunt clothing he often wore, made of asbestos fibers, were responsible for his illness. Now, I could easily do an entire episode on accidental deaths on movie sets. I was a hormone-ravaged teenager when Brandon Lee died tragically on the set of The Crow, after all. And I've wondered ever since if anyone would have seen it or would remember it if it had gone off without a hitch. And while sudden death could fit the brief today, and you can read about several in the Your Brain on Facts book chapter, Lights, Curses, Action, I prefer the slow burn, the delayed prestige. There are a lot of factors to consider when you're making a movie, and choosing the right location to shoot a film is a pivotal decision. You have to take into account things like lighting, availability of utilities, proximity to noisy things like airports. What you should not have to consider is the radiation level of the area. But you also shouldn't ignore that either. The producers of 1956's The Conqueror chose an area of Utah desert 100 miles away from the Nevada test site. They also chose to cast John Wayne as Genghis Khan. And yes, it is pronounced Genghis and not Genghis. So, you know, their judgment is already really suspect. Throughout the 1950s, approximately a hundred nuclear bombs of varying intensities were detonated at the Nevada test site. The mushroom clouds could reach 10,000 feet in the air. Desert winds would carry radioactive particles all the way to Utah. The area in which The Conqueror was filmed was likely blanketed in this dust. The Conqueror, co-starring Susan Hayward, Agnes Moorhead, and Pedro Armendariz, was a moderate box office success, but a critical failure, and soon found itself on worst films of all time lists. The true legacy of the film had yet to be revealed. Of the 220 people who worked on the production, 92, nearly one half, developed some form of cancer, with 46 dying of it, including Wayne, Hayward, Moorhead, and Armendariz. The director, Dick Powell, died of lymphoma in 1963. 
Susan Hayward died from brain cancer in 1975 at age 57. Wayne developed lung cancer and then stomach cancer, which would ultimately kill him in 1979. Though he would remain convinced that his chain-smoking was probably to blame for the cancer, even as friends tried to convince him, no, it was the whole nuclear thing. Wayne's sons, who visited the set during filming and actually played with Geiger counters among the contaminated rocks, both developed tumors. The authorities in 1954 had declared the area to be safe from radioactive fallout, even though abnormal levels of radiation had been detected. However, modern research has shown that the soil in some areas near the filming site would have remained radioactive for 60 years, only recently becoming arguably safe. Howard Hughes, producer of The Conqueror, came to realize in the early 1970s that the people who'd been involved in this job were dying. As the person who approved the filming location, he felt responsible and paid $12 million to buy all existing copies of the film. Though the link between the location and the cancers cannot be definitively proven, experts argue that the preponderance of cases goes beyond mere coincidence. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Sculptor Jillian Genzer used mussel shells in her work, sanding and grinding them, and they likely came from water contaminated with industrial waste. After 15 years, she had built up high levels of lead and arsenic in her blood. She will, in her own words, never fully recover, but she did complete her muscle sculpture, a depiction of the biblical Adam, link in the show notes, and she calls him her beautiful death. Remember, you can always find the source links and the script for the show at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe out there. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.